Welcome to Horty Springer's Health Law Expressions podcast in a segment we like to call the Kickback Chronicles. I'm Henry Cassell. And I'm Hala Mazoffer. We invite you to kick back and relax as we dive into this week's case. The title of today's podcast is Ain't No Stopping It Now, Telemedicine Is Here to Stay. In this episode, we will discuss telemedicine. Since definitions of telemedicine may differ from state to state, just so we're on the same page for the purpose of today's episode, telehealth, telemedicine, and related terms will mean the exchange of medical information from one site to another through electronic communication to improve a patient's health. Now, I think Henry would agree, and please stop me if you don't, that in the past, telemedicine just wasn't an area that the OIG focused a lot of their intention and, or resources on. This is in part because before 2019, and especially before the COVID-19 pandemic, telemedicine was covered by Medicare on a very limited basis. So prior to 2019, in order to be eligible to have a telemedicine visit covered under the Medicare program, you had to meet very, very specific parameters. So Medicare and a lot of Medicaid programs would only pay for telehealth when the person receiving the service was in a designated rural area and when they left their home and went to a clinic, hospital, or certain other type of medical facility for the service. For the most part, uh, commercial insurers provide the same limited coverage of telemedicine services too. Now, right off the bat, most people's insurance just didn't cover telehealth visits. If you were located anywhere near a major city, a decent-sized city, or even a kind of small city for that matter, telehealth just wasn't available to you. But things began to change in 2019 when Medicare started making payments for brief communications or virtual check-ins, which are short patient-initiated communications with the healthcare practitioner. Medicare Part B separately paid clinicians for these e-visits, which are non-face-to-face patient-initiated communications through an online patient portal. Then the COVID pandemic happened. Beginning on March 6, 2020, the expansion of telehealth began due to CMS's 1135 waiver. Now, under this waiver, Medicare began to pay for office, hospital, and other visits furnished across the country via telehealth, including in a patient's place of residence. Telemedicine was also open to a wide range of providers. So in addition to doctors and hospitals, now nurse practitioners, clinical psychologists, and licensed clinical social workers were also able to offer telehealth to their patients. Additionally, the HHS Office of Inspector General, or OIG, began providing flexibility for healthcare providers to reduce or waive cost sharing for telehealth visits paid by federal healthcare programs. Fast forward to today, post the initial rush of COVID-19, and we're living in an entirely different world. It finally feels like medicine is starting to catch up to modern times. Probably everyone listening has had a telehealth visit, know someone that has had one, or even facilitated one themselves. This is true whether the payer is Medicare, Medicaid, or a commercial insurance company. As you may have guessed by now, though, the reason we're discussing telemedicine is that as the scope of services that may be provided by telemedicine has expanded, the amount of reimbursement for telemedicine has also expanded. With that expansion, the number of fraud schemes has dramatically increased. As a result, the OIG has stepped up its enforcement efforts, which brings us to today's episode. What is telehealth fraud, and how can you avoid becoming a target of an OIG investigation? Thanks, Hala. First, let's look at what is permitted. Why, you might ask? Because providing those services in a manner other than permitted can give rise to a false claim. 
Today, there are three main types of virtual services physicians and other professionals can provide to Medicare beneficiaries via telemedicine. The first two types you already mentioned, those are the types that were permitted as of 2019, virtual check-ins and e-visits, both of which are now permitted in all areas, not just rural areas. And now, Medicare has added Medicare telehealth visits, which currently permits Medicare patients to use telecommunication technology for office, hospital visits, and other services that generally occur in person. The provider must use interactive audio and visual telecommunication systems that permits real-time communication between the distant site and the patient at home. Distance site practitioners who can furnish and get payment for covered telehealth services, and this is often subject to state law, can include physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurse midwives, certified nurse anesthetists, clinical psychologists, clinical social workers, registered dietitians, and nutrition professionals. We should also mention that the HHS Office of Civil Rights, the OCR, or exercise enforcement discretion and waive penalties for HIPAA violations against healthcare providers that serve patients in good faith through everyday communication technologies such as FaceTime or Skype during the COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. And we are at the end of September 2022, and we are still technically in that nationwide public health emergency for purposes we will soon learn. So, providers may bill Medicare and other health care programs for these services, but you have to know the rules. Even CMS has recognized that billing for telemedicine can be complex, and the OIG has warned providers that telemedicine billing errors can occur due to a number of factors, such as the use of incorrect billing codes, a lack of thorough documentation of telehealth visits, especially the patient's consent to receive telehealth uh, services, the time requirements for a telehealth visit. Many states require telehealth visits to be delivered in real time, which means that store and forward activities. What is store and forward, you might ask? This is a telecommunications technique in which information is sent to an intermediate station where it's kept and sent at a later date to the final destination. Since the telehealth is not delivered in real time, this type of telemedicine services is unlikely to be reimbursed again in certain states. Care must also be taken due to the manner in which CMS defines the originating site and the distance site. So you got to know the rules. Also be aware that currently some of the telemedicine services that may be billed to the Medicare pr program will be permitted only as long as the nationwide public health emergency continues to exist. Once that pu nationwide public health emergency is officially declared to be in an end, certain rules are to go back to their pre-COVID state. Now, the question is whether CMS and commercial insurers will be able to put the genie back in the bottle and turn back the hands of time after providers get used to billing for telemedicine services in the way they have during the COVID pandemic. And more importantly, now that patients are used to receiving their care via telemedicine under the COVID relaxed rules, whether CMS and other commercial insurers can change that back and go back to the pre-COVID rules remains to be seen. But right now, Again, 
in the tail end, we hope, of the public health emergency, OIG is warning providers that certain telemedicine practices will need to stop or be changed once the public health emergency is declared to be end officially. But why discuss Medicare billing rules? Well, while claims submitted by mistake do not violate the False Claims Act, billing a federal health care program in reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance of the telemedicine billing rules is a textbook violation of the False Claims Act. So if you bill federal health care programs for telemedicine services, you must know the rules. You must also keep track of any changes to those rules, and if the telemedicine billing rules change in in order to avoid repayments and possible false claims liability, your telemedicine practice needs to change so that it keeps pace with those changes in the billing rules. Now, these tips will help to avoid coding and billing problems with telemedicine claims. However, the OIG has noted a much more pernicious practice that has arose as a result of the proliferation of providers who have been permitted to bill Medicare for telemedicine services. Based on the name of our podcast, you may have guessed that we are discussing the latest OIG concern, which is the use of telehealth-related kickbacks. The OIG is so concerned with this practice that not only has the OIG devoted several pages of its website to telemedicine compliance, on July 20th, 2022, OIG issued a special fraud alert entitled, OIG alerts practitioners to exercise caution when entering into arrangements with purported telemedicine companies. Now that is a mouthful. Unlike the Kickback Chronicles, the feds do not appreciate the benefit of a catchy title. That is true, Hela. But the substance of their fraud alert states that in recent years, the OIG and the Department of Justice have investigated numerous com- criminal, civil, and administrative fraud cases involving kickbacks from telemedicine companies to practitioners who inappropriately ordered or prescribed items or services reimbursable by a federal health care program in exchange for some form of remuneration. In those cases, practitioners, telemedicine companies, and other participants in schemes have been held civilly, criminally, and administratively liable for paying or receiving a payment in violation of the federal anti-kickback statute, causing the submission of claims in violation of the False Claims Act and or other federal criminal laws. While the facts and circumstances of each case differed, often they involved at least one practitioner ordering prescribing items or services for purported patients they never examined or meaningfully assessed to determine the medical necessity of items or services ordered prescribed. Telemedicine companies then commonly paid practitioners a fee that correlated with the volume of federally reimbursable items or services ordered or prescribed by the practitioner which was intended to and did incentivize some practitioners to order medically unnecessary items or services. Now, such payments are often described by the telemedicine company as a payment per review, audit, consult, or assessment of medical charts. But the OIG and DOJ have a different name for them. They call them kickbacks because the type of volume-based fees not only implicate and potentially violate the federal anti-kickback statute, but they may also corrupt medical decision-making, drive inappropriate utilization, and result in patient harm. In this 
Fraud alert. The OIG has developed a list of suspect characteristics related to pay practitioner arrangements with telemedicine companies, which, when taken together or separately, could suggest an arrangement that presents a heightened risk of fraud and abuse. So while the OIG's list is illustrative, uh, they are essentially saying that if you run into any of these practices, be aware. Some of the practices they described are the purported patients for whom the practitioner order or prescribes items or services were identified or recruited by a telemedicine company advertising for free or low out-of-pocket items or services. The practitioner does not have sufficient contact with or information from the purported patient to meaningfully assess medical necessity of the items or services ordered or prescribed. For example, the OIG has seen instances in which a telemedicine company requires practitioners to use audio-only technology to facilitate engagement with purported patients regardless of their preference and does not provide the practitioner with other telehealth modalities. In addition, a telehealth company may provide practitioner with purported what they call medical records, but reflect only a cursory patient demographic information or a medical history that appears to be a template, but does not provide sufficient clinical information to inform the practitioner's medical decision making. The telemedicine company often compensates the practitioner based on the volume of of items or services ordered prescribed, which may be, again, characterized as compensation based on purported medical record review or some other uh, manner of characterization, but is really in, when you delve into it, the kickback. The telemedicine company offers uh, only furnishes items or services to federal health care program beneficiaries and does not accept insurance from any other payer, or the opposite, where the telemedicine company fames, claims to only furnish items or services to individuals who are not federal health care program beneficiaries, but may in fact bill federal health care program in uh, Remember, it's been a long-standing position of the OIG that an attempt to carve out federal health care program beneficiaries from arrangements can still result in clinic, criminal, civil, administrative liability for a practitioner's role in any resulting fraudulent activity that might actually involve a federal health care program. So just saying that we, oh, we don't we don't deal with federal health care program beneficiaries is not sufficient to avoid the anti-kickback statute. Another item identified by the OIG was that the telemedicine company would only furnish one product or a single class of products, uh, potentially restricting a practitioner's treating options to a predetermined course of treatment. And then the last item that the OIG identified was that the telemedicine company does not expect practitioners to follow up with purported patients, nor does it provide practitioners with information required to follow up with a purported patient. And they give as an example that if you're providing genetic testing services, the telemedicine company may want you to assist in providing those genetic testing services, but they don't require the practitioner to discuss the results of the test with each purported patient. So while this list is helpful, I can give you one common sense rule that encapsulates what the OIG is describing in their fraud alert. If a deal seems too good to be true, it is. Call your lawyer who's most likely to advise you to run, 
not to walk away from any such proposal. So, Hala, why don't you tell us about a couple of providers who ignored this common sense rule? Absolutely, Henry. There's certainly no shortage. As you can imagine, in the last couple of years, we've seen the OIG indict and convict a number of individuals based on telemedicine fraud. We've even discussed a case or two here on the Kickback Chronicles. So, for instance, in April of 2021, two Montana nurse practitioners admitted to charges that they conspired to defraud Medicare out of millions of dollars for signing orders for orthotic braces that were prepared by telemarketers who had no medical training or certification. So in this case, the nurse, nurse practitioners often sign these orders without ever even talking to the beneficiaries. And together, the nurses signed over 14,000 orders for orthotic braces, which resulted in a near $18 million being billed to Medicare. Their punishment? One of the nurses was sentenced to 12 months in prison in order to pay back $4 million in restitution, and the other was only sentenced to nine months in prison, but ordered to pay back over $5 million. And I will say that the telemedicine crackdown has really started to pick up in the last year or so. So for instance, in April of 2022, the DOJ invited an orthopedic surgeon for his alleged connection with a $10 million telehealth scheme. In the indictment, the DOJ alleged that between 2016 and 2017, the surgeon worked with several telemedicine companies that allegedly paid him a fee for each consultation he had with Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries. But the big allegation is that he would sign prescriptions and order forms via these supposed telemedicine services for durable medical equipment that was not medically necessary. Now, he was then alleged to submit these claims for reimbursement after a short telephone conversation. Sometimes the conversations lasted less than three minutes with the beneficiaries he had not physically examined or evaluated. And if convicted, he stands to serve a potential 10 years in prison. And he is just the tip of the iceberg. There was also a Pennsylvania pharmacy owner indicted this year for allegedly submitting upwards of $4.8 million in fraudulent claims. According to the DOJ, the telemedicine company was alleged to regularly submit prescriptions to this pharmacy for patients that didn't know the prescriptions had been written. It was further alleged that the pharmacy would never provide the medication to the patients, but would still submit a claim for the medication to the patient's insurance, including private, Medicare, and Medicaid, for reimbursement. Since this indictment is recent, obviously this case is still pending, but if convicted, the owner could be looking at a maximum of 20 years in prison. And these are just a few examples. I think in the coming years, we're really going to see a lot more cases involving telemedicine. So the OIG did not want their fraud alert to have a chilling effect on the use of telemedicine. While they did put it in a footnote, so it wasn't boldly stated, they did state that they're aware that many practitioners have appropriately used telemedicine services during the current public health emergency to provide medically necessary care to patients. And they also stated, quote, for the most part, end of quote, which they like, don't like to be too categorical, but they will grudgingly admit that they view the expansion of telemedicine positively, finding that it offers opportunities to increase access to services and decrease burdens for both patients and providers to enable better care. However, the OIG is also asking providers to exercise caution and is advising all practitioners who may be approached with a telemedicine proposal to Ask yourself this simple question. If you are offered the opportunity 
to be paid to do nothing more than allow your provider number to be used by the company that is referring patients to you, especially if they're going to pay you on a per-referral basis, does that proposal sound legal to you? We'd suggest that if you ask yourself that simple question, you can avoid a lot of trouble from the OIG. Now, if you want to learn more about telemedicine, do's and don'ts, the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, the January 21 2021 amendments to the regulations to both of these laws, the False Claims Act, and much more, we invite you to join myself, Dan Mulholland, and Mary Paterni in our hospital physician contracts and compliance clinic that will be held in Las Vegas, Nevada from November 17 to 19, 2022. And if you can't catch us then, be sure to check the Horty Springer web website for more information about new and upcoming opportunities on these topics. Thanks for listening and tune in next time to the Kickback Chronicles to keep learning from the misfortune of others.